Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China. I'm conscious that the recording of this podcast on bond defaults and government support in China has coincided with heightened market attention surrounding China Huarong, a state-owned asset manager. In fact, on April 26th, Fitch downgraded China Huarong's ratings to triple B from A and maintained a ratings watch negative on the company. If you'd like further information on this issuer, I'd encourage all of our listeners to have a look at our recent press release, which can be found on the Fitch Ratings website. Today, I'm pleased to introduce the podcast's inaugural guest, Ying Wang. Ying is based in Shanghai as the head of Fitch's APAC Energy and Utilities Group, head of Fitch's China Research Initiative, and someone who I always turn to for her deep insights into China's corporate credit sector. Prior to the pandemic, our paths would often cross at Fitch-sponsored events across the globe. But these days, with the ongoing restrictions in international travel, it's usually through webinar screens. Thanks, Andrew, for the very warm introduction. Chinese corporate default is a very hot topic, which I frequently discuss with market participants in different formats. But this is the first time I'm actually doing a podcast. And I'm very happy to be your first guest. All right. Well, the pleasure is all mine, Ying. I know your team produces regular reports on China's onshore bond market, as well as a recurring series on corporate funding, liquidity, and defaults, uh, which is uh, very popular among uh, investors both within China and outside of China. So I guess to start off today, it, it would be really great if you could provide our listeners with a bit of context on the broader state of bond defaults in China. Is it common? Uh, how does the incidence compare with other markets? Uh, and particularly in recent years, what are typically the types of entities that have tended to default in China? Okay, China's onshore bond market doesn't have a very long default history. The first onshore bond default happened in 2014, and between 2014 and 2017, defaults remained quite sporadic due to loose market liquidity and a rapid expansion of the onshore stock exchange bond market. In 2018, the top authorities started to tighten monetary policies and to crack down on shadow banking activities in order to reduce system leverage and contain financial risk. In 2018 and 2019, we saw a wave of bond defaults, primarily from non-state-owned corporates, what we call POEs, privately owned entities. Compared with state-owned companies, um, so-called SOEs, the Chinese POEs have always been disadvantaged in funding access. Many POEs have taken the advantage of robust market liquidity in 2014 to 2017 to issue bonds to fund capacity expansion or make acquisitions. So when broad liquidity started to tighten, they felt the pain first. Investor sentiment towards POEs turned sour very quickly and further deteriorated after some accounting frauds and corporate governance failures were uncovered at a few defaulted the POEs. This then became a vicious cycle as the market appetite for POEs dropped significantly, making it difficult for POEs to refinance maturing bonds and triggering, triggering more defaults. From 2014 to 2020, POEs have taken a dominant share of onshore bond defaults. We have calculated POE default rate reached a high of 5% in 2019 before moderating to around 3% in 2020. 
In comparison, SOE default rates have been well below 1%. However, as you know, SOEs started to capture the headlines of bond defaults from 2020. The default of Henan-based coal producer Yongcheng Coal was a big shocker and triggered severe market turmoil because it challenged market perception of government support for large regional SOEs. We saw a record cancellation of primary market issuance and widening credit spreads for bonds issued by some local SOEs. Generally speaking, we expect SOE's default rate to pick up over the next 24 months from a very low base. One first question that just comes to mind is, you know, you've given a few figures about SOE's uh, default rates being about 1% and POE's being a bit higher. But at Fitch, how are we going about calculating uh, default rates? Um, is there a... Um, an agreed upon, agreed upon uh, methodology that we use here in China as compared to other markets? Maybe just a bit of insights there. Okay. Um, we take the number of defaulted issuers as the numerator and the number of total issuers at the beginning of the period as the denominator. Um, because domestic bond ratings tend to be very homogenous and you know nearly all of them are above the triple B category unless the issuer um, has already defaulted, or the issuer has default has de- displayed some visible signs of defaulting soon. Um, we're not able to derive a high yield default rate like the conventional um, high yield default rate in G three bond markets. So, technically speaking, um, our calculated onshore corporate bond default rate isn't comparable with that of, say, you know, the U.S. high yield default rate. I usually tell people that the trend of China's default rate is more meaningful than the absolute number. Um, Also, we only capture outright coupon or principal defaults in our default rate calculation, whereas debt restructurings to avoid defaults are gradually becoming more common. And in some cases, we have seen, you know, the issuer may have managed to persuade bondholders not to exercise their put options, or the issuer made repayments outside the clearinghouse. I mean, these kind of tactics would have been considered as defaults by um, Fitch. But because we generally don't have publicly available information to count all of them in. So this is a caveat to our calculation of the default rate. Okay. So maybe just to make sure I understood clearly, because most of these entities onshore rated in investment grade category, you can't really compare it to sort of uh, the high yield default rates in, in a market like the United States. Um, and That's and also, so the, the figures you're providing are really for the onshore bond market. So, you know, maybe the second follow-up question here might be, how does this compare these default rates that you guys have calculated uh, so meticulously for the onshore bond market uh, compared to offshore bonds, which are also uh, very popular among offshore investors? Okay. Yeah. The offshore bond default rate generally would be a lot more comparable um, with the default rates in other developed markets. In 2020, offshore defaults by Chinese corporate issuers actually increased on a year-on-year basis whereas the trend in the onshore market was the opposite. Offshore default rate reached a record high at somewhere between 2% and 3% in 2020. 
And historically, offshore defaults have also been dominated by POEs. And there was an overlap in the defaulted issuers between the onshore and offshore markets. Mm. However, the onshore market used to have a lot more non-property POE issuers than the offshore market. And because, you know, like I said, in 2019 and 2018, we had quite many POEs already defaulted and they left the onshore bond market prior to 2020. So the number of defaulted issuers actually declined in the onshore market in 2020. So that explained the different trend, the opposite trends in the two markets last year. So I guess if we fast forward to the latest wave of defaults, uh, you mentioned uh, the case of Yongchang Coal earlier, uh, which is a a state-owned enterprise. And this took many by surprise, given China's long record of government support. So I guess maybe my first question on this for you is, how should we interpret these events. Uh, in recent years, in the sovereign group at Fitch, we've been following so the messaging from various government agencies indicating that they're hoping to gradually break this chain of implicit guarantees across the economy. You know, do these recent defaults of SOEs, in your mind, do they signal a change in policy towards government support? Or, or if not, how, how should we interpret them? We think that the Chinese government has been pushing for a market-oriented economy and credit market for many years in order to facilitate more efficient financial resource allocation. The government's tolerance for corporate bond defaults, as we see, including SOE defaults, has increased over the years, provided that such defaults will not trigger systemic risk. Um, We see that defaults have become more common. However, prior to 2020, most of the SOE defaults arose from entities which were somewhat considered as marginalized SOEs operating in commercial sectors. So, for example, the lower tier subsidiaries of central or provincial SOEs or SOEs with a fragmented shareholding structure. The defaulted SOEs were also generally not that large in scale. However, the surprising default by Yongcheng Ko had a much more far-reaching impact than all prior SOE defaults because Yongcheng Ko is a core subsidiary of Henan Energy, which is the largest provincial SOE in Henan. The company and its parent both employ a large workforce. And prior to the default, both had enjoyed smooth access to bond market funding at a reasonable cost. So that suggested the market did not see a default coming at all. The default appeared to have been an outcome of the Henan government not willing to support, um, likely due to the group's uncompetitive position within the Chinese coal industry and its unsustainable capital structure, including a very large bond maturity wall in the near term, rather than an inability of the government to support. Although Henan Energy Group certainly didn't have a healthy financial position to start with, we know there were many other provincial SOEs, which were much smaller and probably even weaker in Henan. So the unexpected default of Yongcheng Ko instantly shattered investor confidence in government support for many local other SOEs, which had weak standalone credit profiles and mounting bond maturities. And unfortunately, there are many SOEs, which are very large by asset size, but they do not generate strong cash flows due to weak profit 
profitability, high interest cost burdens, and aggressive investment expenditures. So bond market investors panicked and they reduced their exposure to many local SLEs that fit this description. Secondary market prices plunged for many, making it difficult for them to refinance in the primary market. How the Chinese government will balance systemic risk and market-oriented defaults and debt restructurings is probably the million-dollar question. And without a clear answer, and because you know China doesn't have a mature high-yield and distressed bond investor base, many funds are bound by their internal risk policies and also external redemption pressure. The easiest way for investors is just to sell. Um, and this against the backdrop of looming bond maturities further reduced investor confidence, triggering a vicious cycle. Okay, so so I guess if I take a step back and try to internalize some of the messaging here, you know, w- what we're saying is that you know, we do think the government is pushing for a more market-oriented approach towards credit allocation. You know, we do see them as desiring to remove some of the uh, implicit guarantees across the economy, but not to the extent that it's going to have large-scale ramifications to basically financial stability. And, and that's basically this very um, tight rope that the authorities are trying to, to walk right now. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now, I guess for, for, for those of us who follow some of these issues um, j- just from the media, um, you know, there are a lot of instances where, you know, government, government support isn't just, you know, writing a check or wiring over funds to some uh, company in trouble in China, it sounds like it really has a a potential to materialize in any sort of many sort of ways. So what, you know, what does government support look like in practice in your experience looking at, uh, at these kinds of firms? The most common way for local governments to support SLEs in financial stress um, with debt repayment is to help them coordinate resources from financial institutions so that um, financial institutions like banks can roll over or extend debt debt maturities or also provide additional liquidity. Local governments usually can apply a fair degree of influence over um, their local state-owned financial institutions. And like I said earlier, there's usually a lot more flexibility for negotiation with banks than with bondholders. So many local SLEs whose access to the bond market financing has been curtailed, uh, we see them being supported by banks to avert outright defaults. Local governments can also direct other local SLEs to support their fellow SLEs in financial difficulty through various forms of um, providing credit enhancement, such as guarantees um, or you know, like um, asset transfers. Um, or you know, lo- local SLEs can provide bridge financing um, to their fellow um, entities in trouble, among other tools and options. A couple of provinces have asked the local SLEs to contribute funds, which then get matched with funds contributed by financial institutions to establish so-called local SLE rescue fund. Um, in some cases, local governments will also conduct asset transfers, inject additional capital, or to introduce strategic investors to invest in SOEs. 
um, all of these efforts uh, would have been taken, you know, to boost market confidence um, in the SOEs facing financing difficulty. Okay, so when you guys are are thinking about support, government support, it's it's really a, a quite a broad concept that can range from just supporting with funds or transfers of of cash or whatever, but it can also be any number of other supportive measures like helping them roll over debt, encouraging encouraging uh, M and A activity. It sounds it sounds like it's quite a quite a broad definition, really. Yeah, local governments generally, you know, has um, several levers to pull um, in order to support an SOE with debt repayment. Um, that's why we think, you know, on one hand, we need to look at the incentives of the government to support, but we also need to consider, you know, um, the channels available for the government to support and the cost of support. What about, I guess, recovery rates? Um, is this also a metric that you guys uh, tend to track, or at least for the ones that we've seen um, in our rated portfolio at Fitch? Uh, do we know generally how many cents on the dollar that investors tend to recover after these uh, default events in China? Okay, let's first talk about the onshore bond market. To be very honest with you, data points on recovery rates from onshore defaults are very limited because most defaults would have ended up in limbo status. Um, the issuers didn't repay, and also you know, they did not go through court proceedings. In fact, we see that some issuers um, simply stopped making public disclosure on their status after defaults. So we actually don't know what happened to them in the end. Um, it's also not uncommon to see some issuers continue operations as normal after a default. Based on the limited track records of recovery rates from court-administered bankruptcy proceedings, the recovery for unsecured creditors tend to be below 20%, which is fairly low. Um, that's why I think you, know, you see bondholders generally have low incentives to initiate bankruptcy proceedings. Instead, they would hope to negotiate with the issuers outside the court um, for a higher recovery. And bank creditors um, usually have um, security or um, charges over the issuer's assets. And when a default happens, they would take some preemptive actions right away to freeze the issuer's assets. And in some cases, we see that the local governments would step in and intervene um, with the uh, post-default um, progress. So that, um, in many cases, start the post-default recovery process as well. So um, in comparison, I think if you look at the offshore market, the um, post-default path um, is smoother and more standardized. A higher percentage of Chinese issuers, defaulted issuers, initiated debt restructurings um, with help from professional restructuring advisors. And the cash recovery rate tends to be um, a bit higher, um, although not a lot, a bit higher than that from you know, the onshore restructurings based on historical data. And one common pattern is that in both markets, SOEs generally have a higher cash recovery rate um, post-default than private sector firms. 
you know, one thing that I'm aware of so far that we've really focused almost exclusively on SOEs um, in this conversation. Um, but I'd also like to get your views on on China's private sector. Uh, I know it's also uh, an area that you closely follow. Uh, from a macro perspective, you know, we've been noting in our publications in recent months that China's pandemic recovery, at least initially, uh, was really due to uh, a lot of supportive fiscal stimulus uh, with the government issuing these uh, municipal bonds to fund infrastructure projects. Uh, and, and I guess that presumably is mainly benefited uh, China's state-owned companies. So, so I guess how has the private sector in general terms fared during the pandemic period compared with SOEs? Uh, and I guess in your experience or based on what you're monitoring, have there been more visible signs of stress or, or high profile default, defaults from the private sector? Um, you're right. The SOEs have led the post-pandemic recovery um, because they have benefited the most from the government's push for infrastructure investments and monetary easing in the first half of last year. Within the private sector, micro and SMEs have been hit the hardest. We published a report a couple of months ago um, where we quoted surveys by the Postal Savings Bank of China and the China's Association of SMEs, um, which show business activities of SMEs had remained at record lows at the end of 2020. That being said, SOEs do not issue bonds. So, you know, today we're talking yeah. about um, the private entities that issue bonds. Um, they tend to be a lot bigger, you know, than SMEs, but still, most of them haven't enjoyed as much policy benefits as SOEs. Private sector bond issuers' net issuance volume recovered to the positive <laughs> territory for just a couple of months last year and then fallen back into the negative territory since last August. Um, private sector firms, you know, they dominated headlines of defaults in 2018 and 2020, and investor sentiment um, towards private sector firms, which are clearly, clearly not industry leaders, has remained quite weak. So with some private sector issuers already in default, and others have sort of lost access to the bond market after repaying their maturing bonds, um, the pool of private sector issuers has contracted quite a bit. Um, the secondary market prices are also quite self-telling to show which private um, entities have higher credit risk and are likely to be the next batch of default candidates. So we don't expect much surprise to come out of the private sector issuers. Well, I guess that sort of fast forwards me to, to today and some of the messaging around around the National People's Congress, uh, which met not all that long ago. So I guess to our interpretation in the sovereign's group um, of the government work report is that policymakers now seem to be signaling that they, they do want to gradually normalize policy settings. And perhaps it looks like they're going to start to take up uh, um, some of the work on pre-pandemic goals, such as this financial deleveraging campaign uh, towards uh, the second half of this year, or even even at the moment, from what we can see. So, you know, what do you think a gradual normalization of economic policy settings will mean uh, for some of your issuers? I guess specifically 
for liquidity and funding conditions for um, China's corporate sector. Uh, are there some sectors or some entities you think will be more at risk than others? If we look at the sectors which have had publicly issued bond defaults in the last several years, there actually wasn't any sort of sector concentration or a clear pattern, except that the conventional local government financing vehicles, or so-called LGFV in short, have not had any default precedents so far. I think, generally speaking, the sectors which are less favored um, by policy makers and are under pressure for deleveraging will probably see less incremental credit flowing into them and therefore could be more prone to liquidity risk. So we're talking about sectors like property, coal, and low-end manufacturing, things like that. Okay. So see, these are the the kinds of sectors that you guys are going to be, I suppose, monitoring more closely this year as we start to see a uh, mm-hmm. policy normalizing. And, and I guess, what about defaults more broadly? Uh, you know, what are your 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 latest predictions? Uh, will the trend of rising defaults in China's onshore bond market continue? And and I guess maybe importantly, uh, do you think there'll be more surprises uh, ahead? We've already had quite a few in the last few months. Like I said, you know, at the very beginning, Andrew, we do expect SOE defaults to increase against a backdrop of a neutral to modest tightening of broad liquidity and also further credit differentiation will continue um, towards SOEs among bond market investors, especially onshore investors. However, our base case remains that the increase of defaults will not jeopardize system financial stability. So hopefully no big surprises um, going forward. I think for many local SOEs with weak cash flow profiles and high leverage, they will need to secure incremental financing from banks and alternative channels to refinance their maturing bonds if their access to bond market financing is already curtailed to some extent with their secondary market prices trading at a large discount to par. As a result, I foresee some SOE's proportion of bond financing in their capital structure will decline over the medium term. Over a longer time horizon, I think those weak SOE's need to transform towards a more sustainable business model and a capital structure to survive. Otherwise, their local government parents and banks will also withdraw support sooner or later making a default or some form of debt restructuring inevitable. Well, Ying, thank you very much for being with us today. I always uh, gain new insights into China after speaking with you. Thanks, Andrew, for having me today. Always my pleasure. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, please visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.